All right, I think we got time for a children's sermon this morning, so if you guys would come on up here and join me. Don't be shy. Nothing's going to explode this morning. Not right away, anyways. So today we're going to be talking about trust. Hey, the show's up here, man. So we're going to talk about trust. What does it mean to trust something? Yeah, it's kind of, oh, go ahead. You believe in it? Yeah, what'd you say? Like that you know that it's there. Yeah, you know that it's there. Reliable source. Would you say that I'm a reliable, trustworthy source? Oh, you would. Okay, I didn't think I'd get that answer. You guys are all thinking of something else, right? All right, so I want to talk about trust this morning, so I need a volunteer from somebody here. All right, since you had such a great answer, I'll get you next time. Come on up here. Have a seat. I have with us some water this morning in a jar. Put some water in this jar. And now I'm going to take this magic piece of paper here. I'm going to hold it over the jar. I'm going to turn it upside down. And if everything works right, this piece of paper will stick to the jar. And now, here, so I'm going to hold this over. Do you trust me to hold this over your head? Here's, here's your napkin, just in case you get all wet. What do you mean, kind of? Look up. All right, we're good, all right? But what happens, watch this now. So anybody can do this. You've seen me maybe do this before a couple years ago, but watch this now. If I do this just right, hold it nice and steady. Now can I come over and pour it over your head? Oh, hey, look at that. Now, why do you trust? Now, just for you naysayers out there, now, why did you trust me to do that? Yeah, I don't know. Let me give you some suggestions. Have you seen me do stuff like this before? Do I ever hurt anybody? I mean, other than that one incident that we don't talk about anymore, the statute of limitations is almost up on that one. Right? So you've seen me do it before. You trust me, and whatever's going to happen, you know it's probably going to work, right? Well, that's why we trust God. The Bible says, you know, I trust you because you've done things for me in the past, because I've seen the things that you've done for other people so that I know your word is true and I know that I can trust you. So today, the rest of the morning, we're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to talk about God's words to us, and we're going to talk about how we know that we can trust him because we know that those words are true. We know that those words are straight from God. So we're going to talk about it from kind of a history standpoint. We're going to talk about it from a God standpoint. We're going to talk about what it means to really trust his word and why we need to do it. So thank you very much for the being, uh, give him a good round of applause. Thank you for being my guinea pig this morning. Everybody grab a lollipop and you can head on back to your seats. Remember there's a shot clock. Good. All right. All right. We'll call that one the magic mason jar. And now, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So now we're fast approaching Reformation Sunday. 
Like I said, I didn't know what to call next Sunday. Is it Reformation Sunday? Is it Fellowship Sunday? We've got to call it Reformation Sunday. Uh, we're going to be celebrating that next week. And again, um, for the fa- past couple of weeks, I thought it was a good idea to maybe unpack some of the ideas that Luther um, talked about, that he taught, that, that he nailed on the door of the Wittenberg uh, Cathedral back there. And so uh, we're coming up on that anniversary. Okay, so now those 95 theses are the arguments that Luther had, um, that he came up with um, some concepts he wanted to help people understand who God was and how God saves us. That's what he was really getting at. Who is God and how does God save us? That's what those 95 theses were all about. So that we can put our trust in him, so that we can believe him. The things that these guys were saying up here, you know, understand who he is. Um, now, last week I introduced one of Luther's teachings, um, talked about uh, Luther's teaching about how we are saved by God's word. Word alone is what Luther called it. Um, and then through some of the, um, you know, unpacking of the historical background of the Bible, um, how we got it in our hands, um, I got a lot of uh, questions, I got a lot of feedback, I got a lot of good conversations um, from different people. So I thought, you know, with all these follow-up questions, I think it might be a good idea to kind of follow up on that message from last week and continue those ideas because um, I was talking to Jared Alfson, I said, you know, I left a lot on the cutting room floor, as one would say. And he, so I think I'm going to scoop some of that up. And, and put it together and talk about this again a little bit this morning. Um, because the subject of the Bible, um, how we come to have the Bible that's in our hands uh, right now um, to discover whether or not we can really trust it. You know, uh, we were handed something and, and, and we were just giving it to it. But, but this is the way that God communicates with us, the primary way that God, that God communes, communicates with us. Um, everything we know, everything we believe, everything we hold dear comes from these words right here. So I felt it necessary or even you know, worthy uh, to take another, I call them very precious weeks, because you've only got so many Sundays, you've only got so many opportunities to deliver a message. So I thought, well, we're going to take one of those precious Sundays and we're going to continue on this uh, another week to explore further why exactly we can trust the Bible uh, to be the true word of God that God has given us. Now, for the sake of simplicity, I have a limited amount of time here. Um, I'm going to stick with the New Testament today. Um, But this could easily be a discussion in in three parts. Uh, We could easily do what I'm doing today. We could easily do with the Old Testament Bible as a whole. I'm going to stick with the New Testament. Um, Maybe um, stick kind of to the Gospels and then narrow it down actually to the Gospel of John just for an example that we can carry through. But again, we could take this concept and do it with just about every other book of the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament. Okay, so let's define some terms here, for starters. The word Bible, um, both a Latin and Greek word uh, that means a couple of different things. It's got a couple of different meanings. It means book, it can mean library, or in our case here, it can mean a set of books. So when you hold the Bible, you hold a mini library because there are 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. We are holding a, a mini library of books. Collection of writings, um, f- over 40 different writers who were um, fishermen, kings, farmers, doctors, shepherds. Uh, 1,500 years um, these went together, and yet of, of all that diversity, um, there comes this incredible unity, this incredible unity of a message, this common theme uh, woven throughout. And as I said last week, um, this is where Luther took his stand. This is where Luther really pitched his tent, um, where he committed, he dedicated, he, he devoted everything to putting um, both the church and God's people back on the main ideas that God teaches us. That God is the central theme of the Bible. Jesus is a central purpose, a central focus of the Bible. 
And again, this is where God is leading us, just as um, he led the Bible writers. So as we read the Bible, we need to keep those ideas in mind, that these are God's words. I shared this with you last week, Second Peter one uh, twenty. but I just want to get this again, one twenty and one twenty one. Uh, Peter says, understand this. No part of the holy writings was ever made up by any man. This is the uh, New Living Version. Um, this is the only one that doesn't use the word prophecy in there that says the holy writings. But I think that's important for us to grasp that, that that's what we're talking about. The holy writings were ever made up by man. In verse 21, no part of the holy writings uh, came along long ago because of what man wanted to write. But holy men who belonged to God um, spoke to God, spoke what the Holy Spirit told them. Okay, so they wrote down what the Holy Spirit told them to write down. So again, just to keep the main point, the main point here, this is what Luther was reading and teaching um, and preaching, what he was using to correct what was going on out there. Now, um, I realize here is what I'm going to get at here. Um, using Second Peter as a reference, or using other scriptures as a reference to say that the Bible is a credible source, is kind of circular reasoning. I'm sure you've heard that before. Um, so I'm going to get back to the Bible as a source, as uh, letting the Bible define itself. But first we're going to go down a couple of roads here. We're going to take a little bit of a journey. Um, so if we take that as a given, um, that the Bible is the Word of God, as our launching point, um, there's still a lot to backtrack and, and to solidify. So the question um, at hand here is, if we believe the original writers, do we believe that the original writers uh, were writing God's word? If we, be- if we believe that, then how can we be so sure that those words that originally were written are the ones that he- are here in our hands? And I think that's the question that a lot of people ask. And I think a lot of people um, listen to different uh, sources that are trying to discount the Bible and trying to um, uh, make it sound like something that's, that's made up or something that people made up. So now, sort of like we did last week, we'll work backwards for a bit, um, then we'll work forwards to get us um, to where we need to be. So again, anytime you um, translate something um, into English or any other, or other language, um, at least the mainstream, our, our mainstream translations of the Bible um, can be d- traced directly back to the original Greek and the original Hebrew, what we have in our hands, those original language. Now, that doesn't mean that every translation is exactly the same. In fact, I love that diversity, that different English translations um, have used different words in different places because um, even when we're translating from one language to another, there's uh, different flavors, different nuances of words that help us understand things a little bit better when you're going from one language to a newer language. And, in, and most importantly, um, I think we need to keep in mind that some things are very difficult to translate. Some things are very um, almost untranslatable, as it were. Um, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. I want you to live my life in Japan, you know, trying to explain American things to Japanese people. I'd like you to, to try to explain this picture to um, anybody who doesn't uh, speak English. It would take a minute to, uh, to translate that or to, to get that idea apart or across to somebody. So, um, okay, now maybe start with a little bit of review and to expand from last week. Um, by, he took that dude off. He's distracting me. <laughs> so by the year 200, by the year 200 A.D., um, Latin had taken over as the primary language in a lot of region, regions, mostly North Africa. 
Um, in Europe and in Asia, Greek was still the prominent language, but uh, Latin was starting to creep in both in, in North Africa, but also in Europe and some other areas, but only as um, the language of scholars kind of thing. It wasn't the common language around. But the church recognized that Latin was becoming a prominent language, so it was beginning to allow um, scholars to, to translate the Bible into Latin. So now, um, like I said, there's several different English versions, dif- different translations. Well, there were different um, Latin translations, and they weren't consistent. They weren't the same. People were taking too many liberties and doing a lot of different things with them. So um, I'm going to show you a picture of this guy. I'm not even going to try to play who it is. This is Pope Damasus uh, I, right? He wanted a standard version, so he commissioned um, St. Jerome. He, he commissioned Jerome around 400 to compile and make a standard um, Latin version of the Bible that the church could sanction and they could go on from there. But as Luther pointed out, this still had a lot of what he called um, artistic license. Um, He didn't actually use those words, but those are our translations of what he was saying. They tried to pin Luther down a couple of times to say, you know, is this uh, purposeful um, translation errors or is this some kind of a a translation error? And he he kind of took the high road on that and he didn't ever, you know, accuse anybody of anything. But he said, the main point is we need to fix this. We need to get down on the right path. Now, again, to bring this full circle um, to that idea of Latin, um, Erasmus, I think I have a picture of Erasmus too, in 1516, um, he put the Latin together with the Greek. He made a parallel Bible. Maybe you've seen that with one language laying on the page right next to the other one. He actually translated the Greek into Latin, he used the Septuagint, into Latin and made his own version. That's the Vulgate, the Latin version that we have now that is a little bit more um, down the center, but it still had some, some problems with it. Okay, so that is during Luther's time that Erasmus was doing this. Okay, so now... Um, for the, the credibility statement here, you know, um, I, I want you to think about what you, I, did, I know I said a lot there, but I, I want you to think about what you just heard me say. I'm going to circle back and say some of these things again. In the year 200, in the year 200, they took the Greek documents, the original Greek documents, and translated them into Latin. The problem was that the Latin wasn't accurate. In the year 200, Nobody doubted the Greek translation as being fabricated, as being false, as being anything but the original documents that we had this whole time. This is the year 200. Everybody was looking at the Latin saying we didn't quite get that right. Nobody questioned the other side of that. Again, it was fixed in 400 AD, sort of, but there were still a lot of uh, things to be considered against the original documents. Now, again, no one there is questioning it, so where did those questions start to become? You know, they, in 200, they knew that these documents were legit. Now, I could go down the road of uh, literary accuracy and say, you know, talk about the Bible from that standpoint, the credibility, um, that it has more credibility than all the other writings from antiquity combined. What do we look at? We look at how many copies we have. We have, look at how many copies we have and how close those copies are to the original. Excuse me. I thought about going down that road, and I thought, you know, that's not where I want to go with this this morning, because we've kind of talked about that. It's been a couple of years now, but we've kind of talked about that before. And um, we could also point out that um, if we boil it down to just the Gospels, we can consider them to be eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. These are, and that's what Paul was saying back there, or I'm sorry, Peter was saying back there in our reading this morning. We saw this. We were there. We were, it was happening while we, while we looked on. We could talk about how they were written 20 to 30 years, except for John, from the time that Jesus died. 
20 to 30 years might sound like a lot, right? But I want you to think for a second, especially the adults in the room, I want you to think about this for a second. Um, how well could you re- recount some of the facts that happened on 9-11, right? And again, like I said last week, our accounts of if we wrote down what happened on 9-11 and what we experienced and what we remember from it, they'd be different, but that wouldn't mean, make any of them inaccurate, right? It wouldn't cause anyone to discount two of the, uh, the accounts that were both um, historically accurate. And while the, uh, the Apostle Paul was writing, he was saying the same things. He said, some of you are still alive to back up what I'm saying. We go back to that 9-11 analogy. If somebody wrote a story that said, helicopters crashed into the buildings or hang gliders crashed into the buildings, we'd call them on it and say that was completely false and fabricated, right? Because we were alive and we witnessed it, we saw what happened, we know what happened. So again, in 200 AD, the conversation was on the accuracy of the translation, not on the documents that were being translated. Um, I want to say that sentence again, because I used that sentence when I, I was actually debating a layperson as part of a seminary class. It was kind of fun to do, and it was about kind of some of the stuff I'm talking about right now. In 200 AD, the conversation was on the accuracy of the translation, not on the documents that were being translated. When I laid that out, dropped that bomb, it was pretty much checkmate at the end. Um, but, I mean, it's so, it's so easy for us to do because there's so much credibility to what we're talking about there. Again, no one debated those documents being translated. So um, why, in 200 AD, why did they trust these documents? That's where I want to go with this this morning. So if they knew... We can know the same thing that they knew. I want to talk about why they knew these things and how they got to where they were going. Okay, the, ra- the answer is rather simple. But somehow it got lost in history or brushed aside or something else happened. Um, but getting back to the main point, I don't want to lose the main point. The main point is that Jesus is the main point, right? Jesus is the main theme of the Bible. He's the main purpose of the Bible. That's what we do this for. So the reason that we get these credibility statements, the reason we get this trust factor is so that we can trust Jesus even more in what he does and who he is. So now, of course, if we think back, Jesus had the 12 disciples walking around with him for three years. From those disciples, we get our four Gospels, either firsthand accounts or people writing for other people, right? Mark representing Peter, for example, Luke representing Paul, different way, Matthew, John, they were the disciples of Jesus. And now you'll remember um, that it, it was commonplace for, um, that was the culture, was where rabbis had disciples. Okay, rabbis had disciples. Um, teachers had disciples. Um, you think about um, John the Baptist had disciples. Well, here's a part that we don't understand, we don't get, because this happens after the New Testament. But the disciples had disciples. After they walked with Jesus, the disciples had disciples. Because these other people who believed everything that, was, that happened, some of them were eyewitnesses, some of them you know, just understood what happened, wanted to get it firsthand from the guys who were there that saw it. So the disciples had disciples. Again, that's after the gospel, so we don't see that in, in history as, as much. But, but this is really where it gets interesting. I mean, everything else has been interesting, but this is really where it gets interesting. This is where the rubber meets the road, you know, reality of, of what's in our hands. Um, Okay, so like I said, I want to just narrow our focus down from the entire Bible. I want to go to the New Testament. From the New Testament, I want to narrow down to the Gospels. And the Gospels this morning, I want to talk about the book of John. Okay, so John, the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, after Jesus, John had these disciples. 
Uh, again, people knew who Jesus was. They knew that John followed him, and, and they wanted to understand things the way John understood them. They wanted to hear things, from, hear things right from literally the horse's mouth here. Okay, so the first one we want to talk about, the first disciple of John, is a guy by the name of Ignatius. Now, I have a picture of Ignatius, I think, here. Is there, do we have a picture of Ignatius? There's Ignatius, okay? This is Ignatius of Antioch, because that name comes up in history a couple of other times way later, and it might get confusing if you saw that name um, later on. So that's a common name. Okay, but here's where it gets cool. Okay, we don't have John's original writings. We don't have his original gospel writing. We don't have his original epistle writings, you know, the ones that he put in his hand. But guess what? Put Ignatius back up there again. Guess what? We have Ignatius's um, original letters. He wrote letters to the churches the same way Paul wrote letters to the churches. We've got at least seven, more like 14, but we have at least seven that are completely verified that nobody ever questions. And the people in 200 AD knew for sure that they were Ignatius's handwriting. Why? Because they had people that were still alive that he wrote to and that they saw them um, in their hands. They saw them when they went around to the churches. So he wrote those, he wrote those letters again, to the churches, epistles to the churches, just like Paul did. Um, and maybe I'm not getting excited enough about this, but it just jazzes me up because this is the guy that walked and talked and lived with John, and we've got his original writings. Well, why is that so cool? Well, in his letters, we can see sections, in huge sections, of the New Testament, of letters of, from Paul, of course, John's gospel, and a lot of Mark's gospel, a lot of things tied together. And so he's writing these things in the same way Paul quotes other scripture, Ignatius was quoting other scriptures. So how do we know the Bible in our hands? You know, because some people will say, well, that was put together a long time ago, which is true, you know, but it, that's not a, that doesn't mean it was false up until that point. There's the, the, they are the same books of the Bible that, that Ignatius was writing about. And again, we have those, those documents in our hand. And Ignatius died in 108 AD, 108 AD. Born in Ephesus, um, he was a bishop of Antioch. And, but again, huge sections of things that we have in our hands. So now you think about it like that. We've got these documents, existing documents, original existing documents. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying here. Right after John's life, right after John. So we have Jesus, we have John, we have Ignatius, and we have these documents in our hands that we can look back at and we can say, yes, these are, that's who that guy said he was. He was writing the things, the same things that we're reading here today. How do we know that? We can go right back to them. At the same time that Ignatius um, was um, uh, a disciple of John's, a guy by the name of Polycarp, one of the funnest names in uh, church history. Polycarp was also, um, I think it means wild flower, or beautiful flower, um, was also a disciple of John's, but later, he, so he became a, a, a disciple of Ignatius. And by the way, I was going to put up more pictures of some of these guys, but they pretty much look the same as that Ignatius guy. You know, they all kind of have the halo over their head. A disciple of John's late in the game. Um, again, uh, now Polycarp was, was uh, martyred in 155 A.D. So again, right in the beginning, right? So way before, right in that 200 uh, part of way with that. Um, part of the credibility that we see here through the Bible and through these guys, I'm going to mention three more of them, two, three more of them. Um, part of the credibility is that these guys were all martyred for what they believed and what they were teaching and what they knew to be true because it wasn't lining up with what the church wanted and it wasn't lining up with what Rome wanted to do. Polycarp is going to be burned, right? And he's there uh, tied to the stake and they've got uh, a bunch of his writings and a bunch of Bibles and things around and they're, they're going to burn him. And they said, all right, we're going to make it easy on you. 
the, the Christians are behind him. This is in Rome now. The Christians are behind him, and all the, the Romans who want to see this guy die are in front of him. And they said, if you'll just do this one thing, if you'll just turn around to the Christians behind you and say, away with these atheists, that will separate you from there, and uh, we're going to make your, your death a lot uh, easier on you. Uh, so it's, you're not going to suffer by burn. We're going we're gonna to execute you instead. And Polycarp thought about it for a second. Now, he's got the Christians behind him. Think about this in the Colosseum now. Christians behind him, all the Romans in front of him. And instead of turning around and saying it, he said, away with the atheists to all the people that were standing in front of him. And they that just infuriated him. Because ironically, um, the Romans said the Christians were atheists because they weren't uh, worshiping the gods of Rome, mostly emperor worship and things like that. They said, well, you're uh, worshiping false foreign gods, so we're going to kill you for it. And Polycarp stood tall on it and said, no, there's not. So again, we're talking about credibility here. We're talking about people dying for what they believed in. And people don't die for some kind of lie that, that somebody else made up. So away with the atheists, he said. But before Polycarp died, he went on to disciple a guy by the name of Arrhenius. Um, and I'm not trying to cross over um, these incredible founders or forefathers of our church, but um, they spoke with one mind, right? I mean, we could spend a semester right here talking about these church fathers, the early church fathers. We could talk about what they, what they taught, um, what they knew, what they believed, and, and how, again, you know, they brought the Bible from John. They brought, for example, and they brought it on through history into what we have here in our hands today. So they spoke with one mind. They spoke with one voice. Again, a very straight line from Arrhenius back to Jesus, right? Arrhenius, Polycarp, John, Jesus. I mean, that's how, how close we are. And okay, so maybe this is the best name in, in church history, um, Hippolytus. You want to say it? Hippolytus? <laughs> right? Hippolytus died in 236, right? Arrhenius died in about 200, 203, right there. And again, these guys are killed for their, uh, their faith, their teaching of what Jesus was doing and what Jesus had done. So that's the straight line. Again, why did the people in 200 AD trust the original writings that they were uh, getting from? Because they knew that they were original. They had been carried from one to another to another. And here we are. We can trace a straight line historically back to John. And then by extension, straight back to Jesus. So in their minds, there was no doubt about the historical accuracy of these documents. And by extension, there shouldn't be any doubt in our minds. Because you know what? A lot of the stuff that they were looking at, we can go back and look at today as well. All right. So where does that leave us? Right? We have this direct line um, from Jesus through John, Ignatius, Polycarp, Politus. Now, I said at the beginning, you can't use the Bible to outline the Bible or to, um, you know, uh, get that circular reasoning argument of, of the um, credibility of the Bible. In other words, saying the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true, that doesn't get us very far. Stuff like this that we can sink our teeth into, that does a lot for me. But what we do need to do, though, is let the Bible define its purpose statement. Let the Bible define its purpose statement and its mission statement. And since we've been looking at the life and legacy of John this morning, I want to let John's words, um, which, by the way, we know we can trust, I want to let John's words um, tell us why it's so important for us to know, to know that we can trust these words, that we know these words are true. 
We know we can put our trust in these words. In John's uh, epistle, his First uh, John five thirteen, he says it like this: "I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life." So why was John writing all those words? Why was John making sure that it got to us in our hands here today, 2,000 years later? I've written it so that you'll know who God is, so you'll know who Jesus is, so that you may know you have eternal life. And then we look back at John's gospel in chapter 20. It says, but these words, everything, are written so that you may continue to believe, continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you will have life by the power of His name. I titled this message, The Word on the Word. You know, play on, like the word on the street. What's the word on the word? That it's solid. That we can trust it. That the myths that you've heard about how it's been fabricated in a different council here or there, or some pope's idea of something, it just doesn't hold water historically, accurately. And I want you to know this. I wanted to leave you with this. It's important to know the word on the word because everything hangs in it. Your eternal life hangs in the balance. The Bible is a document that we can trust and we know is true. And again, what we did this morning with a couple of simple ideas can be done throughout the entire Bible. What we have in our hands are God's words to us, his love letter to us, to bring us to him and bring us to eternal life. Amen? Okay, let's stand, please.